Kia ora koutou and welcome to Alice's Soapbox, where we're getting loud for women in sports. Today we're talking mountain biking and it's my pleasure to introduce you to Kate Weatherly. Now Kate, she loves throwing herself downhill at pace, but she's also found herself thrown in the middle of a debate about her participation. We talk about that and her love of Haribo gummy bears. Let us begin. Nohia Kwei, which is where are you from? Yes, born and bred in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, New Zealand. Mint. It's an interesting place, old Auckland, but we love it. We won't hold it against you. Um, <laughs> the second one there being Na Waikwe. Who are you of? So um, my family is as boring as it gets, uh, not that sporty, bunch of engineers, not that exciting, but always a, a group of people who, you know, my whanau has always been really, really supportive of everything that I've wanted to do and who I've wanted to be. And I think that I owe a lot to a lot to them for, for making the person who I am today. Yeah, like it or not, hey, they have one of the biggest influences on, on who we end up being. Um, and then the last question there I have for you is ma waikwe. For whom do you exist? I think this is a really, you know, deep, and an, an important question and I think for me like it's got to be Haribo gummy bears uh, they are just nothing nothing beats them especially the sweet and sour ones where it's like the two gummy bears holding hands and holding one hands. sweet and one sour I, I have to agree with you um it's like for me texturally I there's nothing I like more just grinding that between my teeth. Mm. As good and as I, it gets. Best candy, best food. Without a doubt. Oh, well, thank you so much um, for joining us on the podcast today. And obviously, we're here to talk about your great and one true love, which is mountain biking. Now, can you please tell me what is mountain biking, Kate? Mountain biking is uh, it's the best sport in the world. It involves getting out in the bush, uh, riding a bike. And I think for me, it's yeah, I, I kind of got into the sport for for the downhill, for for the racing, but it's it's all the other things I think that have that being being a cyclist, being a mountain biker has given me. It's the ability that I can go and I can ride my bike for two hundred k in a day and go ride to the Coromandel and be fit enough to do that and have the skill and the knowledge of how to do that, or to go and do like a hiker bike through the Kaimanawas where you're going and riding technical descents and then carrying your bikes up hills and doing all these things. And it's the, like the ability to experience such a wide range of kind of nature through, I guess, the lens of, of riding bikes. Yeah. I mean, there's probably a lot of life metaphors and the beautiful thing you've just said there around taking time to appreciate the journey mm -hmm. as well as the destination. Where did this love of mountain biking come from? Were you a, a kid that grew up on tracks or was there somebody that pulled you in? What's the story there? I mean, I've been riding bikes my whole life. I think like a lot of Kiwis, it's just you go to your small town, it's the easiest way to get around. You want to cruise down to the dairy, get some lollies and it's just a, a pretty fundamental part of, of our culture. And in high school, when I was like 16, I had a close friend who was really into mountain biking, or what he called downhill mountain biking. And I'd done a little bit of mountain biking, but had never really stuck with it. And he kind of convinced me to give this downhill a go. 
and it was just fantastic because it basically was all the best bits of mountain biking and none of the none of the crap bits because you get to sit on a shovel which takes you to the top of the hill and you just get to ride down again it's like it's like skiing or snowboarding but you can do it all year round which is fantastic I feel like though surely we are uniquely positioned just thinking about New Zealand's landscape we love a hill do you think that New Z- like New Zealand is spoiled in a way that we are like here we go here's almost the perfect mountain uh, biking setting for you in this one little country yeah absolutely we're spoiled but <laughs> i think there are i mean there's there's amazing mountain biking all over the world but i think the fact that in in Aotearoa we have like two world-renowned mountain biking locations in uh, Rotorua which is famous for its native New Zealand forest and subtropical rainforest and the kind of really crazy volcanic dirt you get there. And then Queenstown, which is so famous for its bike parks and big jumps. And I mean, we have people from all over the world who in the Northern Hemisphere winter will come down to Queenstown and train and ride. And in terms of like accessibility, in terms of the trails being close to the city and being able to hire bikes and even bike shops and just having a really, really amazing culture in those locations. It's, I mean, pretty much second to none. I mean, the only reason Rotorua has the community it does is, well, has the riding facilities and trails it does is because of the community. I mean, there have been people who have just been going out and just taking spades out in the forest and just digging tracks since like the 90s and the 80s. And it's, I mean, and you see that, like the quality of the trails there is just, so incredible and that's because there's been such a passionate community there building for so long that sets us up for success right like when it comes to competing where do we where do we sit amongst the world when it comes to mountain biking in in terms of mountain biking it's pretty hard to beat the french they are basically unanimously the the, the best but you kind of if you, if you see a site on second best um i would say as far as countries go pretty much all fighting for that kind of like the UK has a really, really good copper riders. Uh, America, North America produces some really good riders. Same with Canada and New Zealand as well. We're all kind of right up in there for nearly the best. I think you see that with like at the Olympics with cross-country mountain biking. And you've got all these fantastic riders and even more like young and up-and-comers. Like there's so many kids here. It was so fast. It's just crazy. And I think it goes back to exactly what we were saying, that we're just spoiled for having great riding. It's even as big as New Zealand is, you're never more than maybe two hours away from some really, really quality quality mountain biking. And there are parts of the world where that's just not the case. How does it how does it work in terms of like competition structure? Because obviously I know I know a number of my friends that will go out and will ride, you know, just socially and or you know, challenge themselves. I shouldn't say socially because I'm sure they'll uh, message me and be like, "Excuse me, I take this incredibly seriously." But <laughs> when it comes to that next step of competition, what is the structure of that? Is it like a is there like a series of I don't know what's the right word for it runs or something that go on around the the country or how do, how does that all work? Yeah, so it, it very much depends on the discipline you're in. So in mountain biking, the kind of three main disciplines is uh, cross country, which is what you see at the Olympics. And so basically there is a, a, a circuit track that has a mixture of uphills and downhills and people will ride around on it on little bikes, wearing really tight lycra and going as fast as they can. They'll do like sort of four or five laps and just completely cook themselves, going really, really hard up and down. 
uh, and that's cross country. And and then you have the kind of next step up in terms of technical difficulty, uh, which is enduro mountain biking, which is a lot like rally car racing, where riders are required to pedal up the hill. So they do have to ride up, but then the only timed sections is the descent. So they'll do multiple descending stages throughout a day. So maybe five or six tracks. Um, and although they have to complete the entire ride in the course of, say, six hours, the only timed bits are those descending trails, and then the combined times from those tracks are then combined to create their overall time. And that, those tracks are typically a lot more challenging than cross-country in terms of technical difficulty, uh, and the bikes that people ride are typically a lot more capable but then not quite as capable and not quite as gnarly as then the most extreme form of racing, which is downhill, which is a lot like a downhill skiing where riders will catch a, a lift or a, a gondola or a shuttle up the top of the hill. And then all they do is ride down the hill and the tracks are normally between two to five minutes long. And there'll be one run, you've one run on that track. And it's basically just simple as, you know, who is fastest and from top to bottom wins. It's a very easy form of, of racing to watch. It's very easy to understand. Uh, it's much harder to do. It's um, <laughs> a long process of there'll be a day of practice often on the track where you get to learn it. People will walk the track. You try and learn every route, every rock, every jump. You just completely understand every inch of the track and you race it and at the, the top, top level, there'll be like 15, 20 meter jumps in the track. There'll be really, really hard rock gardens. And it is, it is by far the, the gnarliest form of the sport, but it is, is so, so cool to do and so cool to watch. It's just, I don't know any mountain biker who doesn't froth on watching a downhill race. <laughs> Man, humans are weird. Like when you think about it, like the sports we invent for ourselves, eh? What if I go real fast down these rocks and maybe fall over? But isn't that epic? I might die. Isn't that fun? Yeah, but that's the excitement, right? It's again in the morning, yeah. like, oh my God, I didn't die. That was amazing. <laughs> now, look, I have a, um, a, a theory of mine, which is that like opinionated woman plus unreasonable obstacle equals accidental activist, right? And I feel like this is a little bit of you when it comes to your sport and that you're just cruising along. You're having a great time racing, representing, crushing it. And then all of a sudden shit wants to come in and pick fights with you. Is this the case, my mate? What's been going on? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, definitely. I came out as, as a trans woman in 2018 and raced my first World Cup in 2018, raced another World Cup and or raced World Cups through 2018 and 2019, and then COVID happened and then got back to racing World Cups last year. And it wasn't until another trans woman, an American, uh, started doing really well in road cycling that anyone actually cared. And mm. then though there was a big shift rule change and trying to deal with the kind of public concern and all the different stakeholders who had concerns and it's pretty rough being like oh man like we're having these conversations about these rules now and i've been here racing at the top level for 
four, five years at this point. And then the real kick in the teeth was that when the UCI was going through, the, the UCI is cycling's uh, global governing body, when they were going through the process of figuring out how they wanted to deal with this, the rules that they wanted to enforce, they did a consultation process with cisgender and transgender athletes around their feelings, their concerns, and trying to figure out what everyone's needs were. And I wasn't even included. Like I've been out competing as a trans woman in cycling for the longest, and I wasn't even involved in the consultation process. Other trans women were um, from America and from the UK, but yeah, I was pretty pretty tough. Yeah, I mean that feels pretty typical. I think of a lot of this discussion at the moment, right? Which is like there's a whole heap of cis folks talking and and speculating and pontificating and coming up with to be honest with you sometimes the most bizarre scenarios which reveal all too much about (laughs) their minds than our reality you know and so often your voice is the part that is missing from these conversations right like it's the whole um old union um phrase of nothing about us without us but so much of these legislations have been written without you and like that must just on a personal level just piss you off really it's like it's it's funny i think downhill is a bit like the the ugly stepchild of of the cycling world it's uh it's the place where people go and they do really dumb things and they get paid basically no money to do it and they have a really really good time in the process and no one really cares about them and I mean, I mean, we care. None of bikers care about us. But in, in terms of the cycling world, when you compare it to the the scrutiny and the focus that's put on the likes of the Tour de France, with uh, the amount of money involved, uh, the advertisements, and the amount of people who watch those events, and just road cycling in general is is under this huge, huge lens. And I think a big part of that is, is because of events like the Tour de France, but also the Olympics. I think any time a sport is an Olympic sport, it's always has a, a great deal of focus by governing um, sporting governing bodies and particularly national governing bodies around trying to get medals. And I think the challenge is that the discussion isn't really being had in good faith. And I think that is no more well exemplified than the UCI's new policy, which they implemented uh, middle of last year, which basically is as good as a ban on trans women. I thought it was interesting, like this last uh, FIFA World Cup, right? (laughs) And everyone was like, gayest um, uh, World Cup ever. And actually, I think it was still only what, 15 to 20% of players that were out. And it's like 15 to 20% is so gay and so visible, right? Like this distortion that we have around people's participation in groups is it's mad but it's also like super the case right for people such as Mm. yourself for trans athletes in sports my goodness do we spend a lot of time having debates having conferences having research around people that are I would love there to be more uh people that feel welcome in our sport but at the moment it is very much the minority of a minority of a minority of people that are playing. Like this hyperfixation is just, it's obsessive. Um, and I think it speaks to, again, like when we pull off the Scooby-Doo mask of <laughs> what is transphobia, pull off the mask, what's underneath it? It's old mate misogyny because boy howdy are like so many of the arguments that are, 
wheeled out. You know, let's remember, they told us that if we ran, our uteruses would fall out. Um, in the 1920s here in New Zealand, uh, doctors wrote uh, columns about how um, it would be damaging to both a physiological and temperamental standpoint for women to play rugby. <laughs> they might have a point temperamentally, but, you know, you know, we're seeing this, though, like repackaged in the way that we are speaking about trans participants and also hyperfixation on trans women. Too often trans men are just left out entirely, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's this whole facade of protecting women. I think that it's so often the, the discussion, it's this, they go, oh, well, we don't want to have to, to, to ban trans women. We, we want to prioritize fairness, but we need to protect women's sports. We need to protect the integrity of women's sports. And I think that the frustrating thing is that actually the biggest issues that are facing women's sports aren't being dealt with and aren't yeah. being addressed. And it's there, as you said, there are so few individuals who are trans who are in sports and there are even fewer who are even remotely close enough to get near that top level of their individual sports. You're, you're making these, these, these rules and it's going, well, actually, like if you put the same amount of effort into mandating equal pay or having actual systems of punishment to deal with abusive coaches or guaranteeing things like equal TV rights for women's sports, it would like those changes it would have so much more of a profoundly positive impact on women's sport. And well, I, I would put any amount of money down that you, you allow trans women to compete and you address all the other concerns that are negatively impacting women's sport it would change women's sport, change sport for the better mm. just across the board. And, and that is pretty frustrating when people are going, well, we don't actually want to protect women's sport. We just want to deal with this problem because it's easy and it looks like we're doing something, but actually it's not really helping anyone and it's just marginalizing even more. It's further marginalizing an already marginalized group of people. I mean, Kate, this is what I said to you uh, the other day about, like, yeah, how do I know that trans women are women? It's because they're treated like shit by sports. And, and you know, this whole thing, I, I fully agree with you in that I think a sport that is safe for trans participation is safer for all people's participation because it is forcing a consideration of a whole person. In the grand scheme of things, there, there are far bigger issues facing women's sport, but also just the world, New Zealand in general. And there are, there are things that we should be focusing on and we should be having discussions around. And, and it's, it's, like it's hard because I, I sit back sometimes and I'm like, you know, as awful as this process has been on, on me, as, as difficult as, as being a trans woman in, in women's sports has been, at least, at least it has brought more attention to women's sports. At least people are having these discussions. And if, you know, dunking on trans women is going to get that conversation more mainstream, get that into governments, make people have those discussions. I hate to say it, but I think that's a good thing. I want to give people the benefit of the doubt that we have these discussions. It is going to lead to things like equal pay, dealing with abusive coaches, all these, all these things we've already talked about. But it's not. It's people just go, we'll ban the trans women and then we'll just forget that. 
not had the discussion. I mean, you see that exactly in cycling where uh, there was gravel cycling, which was like an offshoot of road cycling, the world champs last year, they, there was no live stream broadcast for the women's side of the world championships. And they go, oh, we just don't have the budget. Um, so we're just not going to, we're not going to live stream it. And it's, and, and there are like top level, like Tour de Femme riders who are like in the gravel world who are competing, who had sponsors of big money behind them. And they're going, no, nah, we'll just show the means. And it's like the UCI is going to ban trans women to protect women's sport and then not even mandate that the women's side of the sport is, is shown, which is, is awful for sponsors because sponsors are just going to go, well, we, we need people watching our athletes. And if there's no live stream, well, what incentive do the people both inside the industry and outside the industry have to provide money to those athletes? And there just isn't any. Mm. And, and it's like, yeah, I, I, I want to think that all this pain going to get someone somewhere into a better position and it's just women all women trans and cis are losing in this situation and and for what it's fundamentally also acknowledging that fear doesn't exist when it comes to this conversation when we're talking about who has the right to participate and what is the right way to do this it comes down to a foundational belief do you believe in inclusion or do you believe in fairness? And the problem with the fairness argument is it doesn't exist. There are so many things beyond gender expression that are fundamentally unfair. If we are going to be tackling issues around gender, we also need to be issue, uh, tackling issues around class, around race, around uh, different abilities, around visibility, around funding, around so many different things. Like, all of this stuff is tied together. And if you try and pull one part out, rather than detangling it, you're making the knots tougher. And so pulling this thread right now is just tying up into the heart of our sports at the moment, the lie. The lie that is women don't deserve their place in our sport. And I'm sure as egg's not going to let anybody spend time telling me that the way for me to climb up is to push someone else down. Absolutely not. Absolutely never. Never. You know, I just, yeah, can't, can't get like more agitated about that. I just, I, it drives me nuts. It drives me nuts. You though, let me give you a question rather than just soapbox and, and preach to the converted. You have had the experience, right, of competing across categories. What, like, if you were to take an advantage, because let me, okay, let me do the, ugh, I'm not even going to say the DA word, but let me play the other side, right? Who was like, oh, well, Kate had experience over there and it's coming over now. It's unfair. What, do you think that there's anything that you've pinched that you've come across? I think the thing that competing with the men early on in my career did help me with is, is confidence. And so for me, it was, it was a case of, I wanted to I wanted to podium, I wanted to do well at these events and to be able to do that, um, I had to take the risks. I think that the pushing myself early on because I was so competitive is the thing that has had the, the biggest impact. I think you see that in, I was really known for when I was racing World Cups, being one of the girls who was the most confident, hitting big jumps and kind of doing the big features 
and that kind of thing and, and that has nothing to do with with physiology it has nothing to do with the insertion angle of the femur into the hip it, it's, it's all about um your your willingness to take those risks and i mean i've had people tell me they're like oh well that's like that risk-taking behavior is an unfair advantage that trans women have because that's not a feminine thing and i think that that really speaks to the fact that this isn't actually for a lot of people it's not really about fairness it's about the fact they just don't fundamentally see trans women as women because their idea of what a woman is is so fine and so limited that probably most women also don't meet their expectations of what a woman is yeah that is a lot that you're walking into to to be like all right i'm having to make this in incredibly deep no, a deeply personal part of my life and actually my physicality a lot of the time has become forefront on anything I achieve within this sport mm. if I do well it is attributed to this if I do poorly it is an example of that like there is never a like a chance to be I guess without the asterisks on anything you're doing and that just must be frustrating right because ultimately you just want to be Kate right oh yeah it's 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 just hugely frustrating the the like the the catch twenty two of you you do well in an event and it's and people go oh well of course you did well it's it's because you're 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 basically cheating and it's put down to that and and it's the it's the knowledge for me that it's like man I have put so much work so many hours of time into into being being the athlete that I am I've sacrificed so much uh, relationships um family time social life work all these things kind of falls to the side and, and that's not exclusive to to the trans experience I think any athlete who wants to get to the very very top level of the sport has to sacrifice pretty much their entire life has to be dedicated to being the best and when you go through those sacrifices and you have some and you have someone or or many people who say oh well the reason you're successful is not the sacrifices and the hard work you've put in but rather it is a result of your assigned gender at birth or whatever it, it, being associated with that and not the hard work is it's just like it's just really hard to deal with because you go like what's the point in trying at all if people aren't going to acknowledge the the mahi that you do yeah I mean and I think that goes back again to the beginning around holding on to like what is sport for like why were we originally drawn into these spaces and why this sport over other sports and why that passion over this and there are again roots of unfairness as to why we find our ways towards certain sports you know I was never one for individuals I needed external motivation so team sports was always going to be my life my little stocky frame tend to work well <laughs> and pushing things around in a, in a rugby space and that aggression natural aggression again was rewarded in that space you put me on a netball court it didn't work when I played football I was constantly penalized you know like because of that because people would run into me and fall over, but like this, yeah, Alice, whole thing you can't bite me. people on a football <laughs> on a football field. Okay, it's not it's not okay. 
<laughs> but you know, we we find our way to our homes. And that's like I think is you know, I'm always like my I only ever feel frustrated with my sport when I feel like it's not making itself a safe home for people who might want to choose to make it theirs. And I just think that's the thing that I want to continue to push. And if I'm going back to like, what is my core reason for existing in sports? We're throwing all my energy and passion into it. It's like, I just want people to be who, who are passionate and have fun in this stuff to continue to be able to do that mm, and mm. to be able to like, show us just how good they are, you know, and just for a minute, get to show off in a way that is celebrated. And, and I think that's cool. And I just think anything else is just noise and other people's opinions. And so shouldn't we just let people celebrate exactly who they are and, and love them for it? I think mm. that being being trans and queer is, is amazing because it, it it gives you the space to really step back from the expectations of who people, who society, who culture expects you to be, who you actually are. Like, I feel very lucky to have had mountain biking as, as a big part of helping me figure out that growth, but has also been a, a big challenge for sure. And dealing with all the complexities and difficulties of being a trans person in sport has, has definitely not been easy and has made my relationship with my queer identity definitely tough at times. It's so it's so beautiful what you just said. I'm just like thinking in my head. I was like clicks, clicks, clicks for the whole stepping off the conveyor belt of expectations, right? Like I, I can't hammer that enough for people. And you know, from time to time, when 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 I talk particularly to parents about that well-intentioned but sometimes difficult thing, I think they say around like you know, I don't want your life to be harder. You know, I just don't want them mm. to be harder. And I was like, but you've got an expectation within that. Um, that their life already isn't hard because I think about so much, you know, that hindsight feeling for me around when I was growing up, I was like, there were a lot of people who instinctively didn't like me and they were picking Mm. up on my otherness in a way that I didn't understand. I was like, at that time, I'm like, I'm playing by all the rules, right? I've got my long girl hair. I put on makeup. I wear dresses, even though I look ridiculous because I feel ridiculous because this isn't who I am but I'm doing this and you're still I'm still not right in some way and then I have to have all the negative experience of that but none of the joy right because that's the thing is when you allow yourself to be yourself wow is there so much joy and so I feel like that's something I want to keep hammering to people is it's like don't be scared for them about how their life's hard it already is but be happy for them now that there is just such an opportunity to to be the like get hold of all of that beautiful queer joy that you know is just something magic right I mean and no no better place to have that like women's sport like I I just it's it's funny I've never felt so at home in a community, women's sports is such an incredible space of, and I mean, of course, there are like rough parts, but I think particularly for the queer community, it's just it's so, so welcoming and incredible. Mm. Mm. For sure. Okay. Yeah. Now there is another list of questions that I ask everyone. So I'm going to get into them with you. Um, and one of the things I ask people is about their tuakana and their taina. So their big and little sisters who might have influenced their experiences in the sport or who they might be getting excited about. So starting with your tuakana, is there a, a big sister you have in the sport who, I guess, influenced your 
participation or your experience in it? There are there are so many athletes that I've 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 looked up to. I think the the, the likes of Rachel Atherton in in mountain biking who made leaps and bounds of, of changes in, in the sport and kind of sh- shifting what was often seen as a spectacle of hot women riding bikes because people wanted to watch hot women and going actually this sport can be about high performance athletes pushing themselves in the same way that that's what the men's side of the sport was about and I think you know there are so many athletes who have done it but no one more so than than Rachel yeah and, and what about what about your Taina? Is there anyone that's coming through and you're like, oh, I am so fuzzy about what your future is going to be in this sport? Oh, yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, I think I'm lucky enough that I've been in the sport for a long enough time that there have been a few a few of those people come through. I remember um, uh, Jess Blewett. She, I remember when she first started racing downhill and we did some races together and back in like, 2018, in 2019 she was like oh man like my dream is I want to beat you one day <laughs> like that oh, was wow. that was her goal and and she's on a, a factory team racing on the world cup circuit now like she's one of the best in the world and but I think the person I'm really really excited about is um a mate of mine um Ellie lives in Rotorua who's 16 and she is just oh man She's one of those athletes who has has the talent for it, has the work ethic for it, pushes themselves, has has all the right things, and found the sport early enough and has yeah. the support network. And I put money on her being world champion one day, hands down. Yeah. So what was El- Ellie? Ellie's last name? What's Ellie's last name? Uh, Hoofle Bush. Putting putting bets on her now. Um, yeah, now- absolutely. <laughs> what's what's one thing? Because this is uh, the podcast is called Alice's Soapbox. Because as you have borne witness to today, I have climbed up on the soapbox a couple of times. Just I can went off. Um, what is one thing that you want to climb up on your soapbox? You've climbed up there, and you're making sure that people hear you when it comes to you and your sport. What do you want to make sure they hear? I just think that, like the most important thing that I can use my platform for, um, I mean, first of all, is just that bikes are amazing. I think everyone should ride bikes. I think <laughs> that the the things that it can give you are so incredible and the things that riding bikes has given me, both in terms of like the, the opportunities I've had through mountain biking, but also the opportunities I've had outside of mountain biking have been so, so phenomenal. And I would not be the person I am today if I had the success that I have without mountain biking. Um, and I think that particularly more women should get involved. I think it's so typically been a male-dominated sport, and that is changing for sure because of uh, the the seriously hard work of many women around the world. But I think that it's people can kind of really take take a step back and do more. I think a really big part of that, and the thing I really want to preach, is is that. There, there are genuine threats facing women's sport and those threats need to be dealt with and that is not trans women. And if we put in the same amount of effort that people put into having conversations around the inclusion of trans athletes into dealing with those other things, 
I think the the world of women's sports and the world of women participating in sports would be a far, far better place. Right on. I um, am obsessed with you. I think it is very rare just across sports that people, while still in the sports, realize the power of the platform that they have. You know, um, so many of us, it's too, like, because being an athlete and being a high-performance athlete is all-consuming in a way that very few things are in your life, you know, your diet, your sleep, your exercise, your waking life. So then to add something else on top of that and be willing to take the time and continue to expose yourself in a way that isn't met with a lot of love a lot of the time, I just want to, you know, offer mine because I think it, like, I am – privileged to have spent this time with you and I am so glad that you have found your home in women's sports and I just I hope that more people do no, thank you so much it's yeah like like you said before I've I've never felt so at home with a community that I have in in women's sport for sure um now I have a rapid fire to leave us light because there have been some heavy things within this today. So we're going to have a little palate cleanse, bring our energy back up, feel good going into the rest of the day. So very important question to begin. TikTok or Instagram? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> it depends. It depends. Like I both, both, both. Uh, Instagram very much a uh, – it's very much a, it's mountain biking only. It's like gymming. It's, or it's all the, the sporty sides of things. But TikTok is like, it's like, you know, the, the lesbian drama, who Jojo C was dating these days. Like, it's, it's all that kind of stuff. I like to keep those two worlds very, very separate. <laughs> um, who is uh, your favorite, like, what's your favorite uh, sport, I guess, that you haven't played? Ah. Uh, Oh, I'm I'm a big fan of uh, Supercross, so like motorbikes. Uh, also, um, my my dirty little secret, I'm a, a huge CrossFit fan. Love watching <laughs> CrossFit. Would never do it. Love consuming the content though. It is amazing what those people can do. I, oh, yeah. nuts! Um, and do you have a game day superstition? Is there something that you do before you hit the track? Uh every every run, it's pocket pocket. Helmet strap, pocket, pocket, go. Like every time. It's because it's all, the thing that I always freak out about halfway down the track is, oh my God, is my pocket open? My phone going to fall out? Or is, is my helmet done up? So it's the, it's the double checking those things that I would freak out about halfway through a run. So I never have to worry about them. There we go. It's all sorted. You don't take your phone out? I feel like I would just give that to someone else. Nah. No, no, no. Cause you, well, you never, you never gonna know when you're gonna need to do like go on Instagram, like you know, uh, two, two minutes, two minutes for a World Cup. It's like, oh, what's old mate doing back home? Like, trust me, not even me. You go on like, you go on like the World Cup top level mountain bikers. All of them have phones in their pockets. You can see them like silhouetted in people's pockets. I'm like, it's ridiculous. And we've all smashed a phone crashing with it in our pockets as well. Like everyone's done it, but still do it. What sporting event do you most want to attend as a fan? Oh man! Well, I I went to the um I watched the women's FIFA World Cup some of the games. Uh, the being the final would have been incredible because those were so good. They are 
such incredible athletes. Like, oh my God. Now, final question for you today, Kate, and thank you again so much for spending the time with us is, we are making a playlist. We've been adding songs from each of our athletes that have joined us on this. So do you have a like match day song that you want to be adding onto the playlist? Oh, God. Oh, uh, Kill the Noise, Papa Roach. Classic. All right. Yeah. We're adding that's, the top it in of my, that's, that's the top of my uh, race run playlist. It's just such a banger. <laughs> Oh, that's beautiful. Hey, thank you again so much um, for joining us. Are there, is there somewhere that people can follow you? If they want to get hype, they want to send you some love? No, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, so uh, Kate Weatherly, so K-A-T-E-W-E-A-T-H-E-R-L-Y-M-T-B on Instagram is um, basically where I post all my stuff, um, both bike-related and not bike-related, uh, and always, always happy to have a chat. Thank you again to Kate Weatherly for taking the time to have a call it all with us today. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling fired up. I want to do something with this feeling and I'm going to put it to action. The first action I'm going to take is go and message our current Minister of Sport, Chris Bishop, once again to let him know how I feel about making sure that there is room for everybody to play the sports that they love. You can do the same. You can find his email on the internet. Just give it a Google. Um, Or if you want to show the love, jump over to Kate's uh, Instagram or join us in the comment section of Women's Sports. We're on all the best social media platforms and we'd love to see you there.